Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I know we have a couple faculty members with classes, so thank you for taking the time. And I see we have a number of students who have joined us for this event. So I want to thank you all for being here. Um, this is a discussion about climate change, the climate crisis and solutions um, presented by Jana Svek. Uh, Jana is a professor of Earth, Earth and Environmental Science, and she and I have worked together. We hate to admit how long, a um, couple decades. Uh, so. Um, we're very excited that Yana is here sharing um, her expertise. Before I turn it over to Yana, I just want to make a couple quick notes. This is part of our One Book, One College series that is on the book called All We Can Save, which is a book that, it's a unique book. It focuses on climate change, but it also focuses on how we can build sustainable communities. So not just about the science of climate change itself, but what are the solutions that we can, we can get to to help us uh, make the changes that we need to make. Um, in addition to that, we have a number of events coming up this term, and I just wanted to mention one before I turn it over to Yana. Um, this Thursday on September 16th at 1 p.m., we'll be welcoming um, for an online event um, one of our psychology faculty members, Laura Lazen Collins, talking about misinformation, disinformation, filter bubbles, and all kinds of um, online environmental things happening. So we hope that you would um, join us for that. And you can get information on that, how to register um, similar to this on the library website. So um, again, thank you so much, Yana, and I will keep track of questions. I guess I should say for um, audience members, if you would like to ask a question, there's a Q&A box uh, that's, that's there in WebEx. I will keep track of that and we'll go through questions um, at the end. So thank you all for coming and here's Yana. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for having me and thank you for being here. Um, as Troy mentioned, I'm going to be talking about the climate crisis and the solutions. And this is, I'm presenting on behalf of the Climate Reality Project. So we have known about the science behind the greenhouse effect and its impacts on climate change for over 150 years. And there is still so much miscommunication on the subject Scientists at Yale University have been conducting opinion research on the public's knowledge and attitudes towards climate change for the last several years. So this is what the study shows. As you can see, 72% of adult Americans do think global warming is happening. And 71% believe that it will harm future generations. So you might ask, okay, well, where is this disconnect? We start to see the disconnect when asked if we as humans are the cause of global warming. Only a bit more than 50% believe this to be the case. And when asked if global warming will harm individuals personally, look at what happens to the map. It turns pretty much completely blue here uh, as only 43% of Americans believe global warming is an issue here and in the US and that it does in fact affect us. And that's one of the issues we face when communicating global warming. Many believe that it's a global issue and not a local issue. And the problem is over there and in the future, and, but not over here and now. And an if, even bigger problem is that we don't talk about it. 65% of Americans rarely or never discuss climate change. And it's not much better here in Illinois, as you see. So we need to communicate much better when it comes to global warming because we see the problem much further away and into the future when in fact it's here and now. So as Catherine Hayhoe, an atmospheric scientist says, the most important thing you can do to fight global climate change is to talk about it. So that's what we're gonna do today. I'm going to cover three questions and look at climate change at both a global and local scale. And during this talk, you will hear a lot about the problems we face and that can be quite daunting, um, but we do need to talk, as I mentioned, about the problems and the risks that we face so that we can um, also, you know, fight for solutions and discuss some of the solutions. So there are three critical questions we need to talk about when covering global warming or the global crisis, global climate change. Must we change? Can we change? And will we change? First of all, must we change? Well, yes. And I will be talking about those reasons. And this is the, the daunting uh, bad news of this talk, but 
First, a little bit about the basic uh, science of global warming. And by the way, this has been understood by scientists since the 1800s. So this is not a new topic. So energy from the sun comes in the form of shortwave radiation. It hits the earth, the earth heats up, absorbs that shortwave radiation, and then re-radiates its, um, its own heat energy in the form of longwave radiation. And some of that longwave radiation or outgoing radiation is trapped by the atmosphere and the atmosphere acts like the glass of a greenhouse. So there's certain atmospheric gases that act like the glass of a greenhouse, trapping in this heat, such as carbon dioxide, methane gas, and even water vapor. And that is a very good thing because this has kept our planet at a stable temperature. But the problem is that we're releasing so much more of these greenhouse gases, predominantly carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere and that is thickening that glass of that greenhouse and heating the planet at a very non-natural rate. Today we're putting 152 million tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and that's upsetting the Earth's natural greenhouse um, carbon cycle and is trapping so much more of that re-radiated Earth's heat. So you might think well you know you hear scientists talk about our climate is warming by one degree Celsius and you may think well what's a big deal with that um, because yes we have had warmer periods and cooler times in the history of our our planet but scientists can look at paleoclimate records as far back as millions of years ago and see that this much carbon has never gone into the atmosphere this quickly um, in fact the foundation of our entire civilization has been a stable climate which has led to a very rich diversity of life. For the last three million years, temperatures have never broken through a plus two degrees Celsius limit. In fact, the Earth has self-regulated within a very narrow range of that plus two degrees in warm periods and negative four during deep ice ages. Now we're following a path that would lead us to a three to four degree world in just three generations. This has never happened in three million years. So who are the culprits? Well, there's many sources of uh, human-caused global warming pollution. Um, these include agricultural practices, uh, forest burning, thawing, uh, permafrost, coal mining, everything that you see on this screen. But the biggest one is transportation, and that is, uh, directly uh, burning fossil fuels. So one of the main sources is the cause of the cause of rising global temperatures is that burning of fossil fuels that we see, especially in transportation. Um, fossil fuels still provide more than 80% of the world's energy and their emissions have gone up dramatically since World War II. And as a result of this pollution being trapped in the atmosphere, global temperatures have risen dramatically. This is a bell curve that shows summer temperatures in the northern hemisphere between 1951 and 1980. Uh, in the 80s, the whole curve has shifted to the warmer side. And you'll see in the lower right-hand corner, the appearance for the first time ever um, the, of statistically significant number of extremely hot days. Then in the 1990s through 2008, you see it gets bigger and bigger. And in the last 10 years, the extremely hot days are now more common than all the rest. And they are driving many of the consequences we're facing today. 19 of the 20 hottest years ever measured with instruments have occurred um, since 2001. And the hottest of all have been in the last five years with 2020 being no exception. Or 2021, I should say, being no exception. Temperature records have been broken all over the world. Here's Australia last summer. Um, another example, Europe had the hottest year on record in 2019. And this heat doesn't only impact the land because as you can see, 71% of our planet uh, is covered in water. And so 93% of all the extra heat that's being trapped actually goes into the oceans and half of the increase in the global ocean heat content has occurred in the last 20 uh, years. 
Warming oceans are devastating the world's coral reefs. The Great, Bar the Great Barrier Reef has lost uh, a half of its coral cover in the last 30 years. And 30% of that has just come in the last five years. And this is due to severe widespread bleaching that is occurring. Warming oceans are also encouraging dangerous uh, algae overgrowths that produce toxins and create dead zones in the water. And if oceans don't stop warming, one statistic suggests that we could lose uh, 40 to 60% of fish species um, and, and those will be at risk at the end of this century. This heat also makes ocean-based storms like hurricanes, typhoons, cyclones stronger and more disruptive and more destructive. Uh, remember Hurricane Harvey, when it crossed over the Gulf of Mexico, it was seven degrees Fahrenheit warmer. The water was seven degrees Fahrenheit warmer than normal. So this intense heat adds to increased water vapor, which intensifies these storms and make them so much more destructive. And of course, who can forget Hurricane Sandy? Uh, this storm devastated New York City and New Jersey, and it used to be a once in 500 year storm. Now it's considered likely every 25 years, these kind of storms. And in the next 10 to 25 years, we could get these storms once every five years. And that's a, true for a lot of climate related disasters. And there's so many examples of destructive storms happening around the world. Look at Mozambique in 2019. Uh, we saw even more destructive uh, storms this season, this summer season. And when the ocean heats up so much, the amount of water vapor coming off the ocean increases. And this extra heat disrupts the water cycle. The amount of water vapor that evaporates off the oceans increases as the ocean warms. And then that water vapor is carried over the land and often falls in very large precipitation events. And so we're seeing massive rain bombs like this much more commonly. Um, these storms are four times more likely now than they were just a few decades ago. And of course, this leads to record flooding all over the world. This is Kenya last year. In India, monsoons are much stronger now. Last year was 50% stronger than normal years. Here's Michigan last summer. In fact, in the last 10 years, there have been 18 so-called once in a thousand year downpours in the United States. And this extreme heat that leads to flooding in some places also leads to serious drought in others. And of course, these droughts and high temperatures intensify the severity and incidence of wildfires. And so we're seeing major wildfires like this in Alberta in 2016, where over 100,000 people had to be evacuated. In Australia in 2019, fires destroyed more than 14 billion acres of land and killed over a billion animals. Of course, we're seeing that in California. Last year, the fire season in the Western US was more than 100 days longer than it was in the 1970s, and that continued this summer. Storms, floods, drought, and fire, unfortunately, are not the only consequences of global warming. Glaciers are melting at an incredibly fast pace. Um, this photo was taken in the summer of 1935 in Greenland, and the second one is in 2013, not even a century later. And you can see that that glacier is almost gone. Melting ice in Antarctica has accelerated dramatically. And all of this melting has to go somewhere. And so it goes into the ocean, which raises sea levels worldwide. And as a result, more flooding. Octopus typically don't hang out in uh, parking lots in Miami. Um, now high tides are generally, um, or, I'm sorry, high tides now regularly flood the streets of Miami Beach, as well as several other coastal cities around the world. In fact, Miami is the number one city at risk in terms of assets. And if you look at cities at risk in terms of population, we see uh, many large cities in developing countries are 
very much in danger. And if parts of these cities become uninhabitable, where are all the people going to live? Uh, climate crisis also poses a medical emergency. Infectious disease, heat stress, air pollution, and waterborne diseases, these are all influenced by a changing climate and definitely not in our favor. Um, many tropical diseases are expanding their ranges as regions further north get warmer. And as climate changes, along with other factors such as uh, ecosystem loss, um, it is contributing to the worst extinction event since the extinction of the dinosaurs, which was 65 million years ago. So that is pretty shocking. Uh, one of the worst extinction events in 65 million years. And of course, much, much too often there's social injustice for at-risk communities who are marginalized to live in areas, uh, most susceptible to environmental hazards. And thankfully, this is becoming a forefront in our conversation. So here's the overall part of All of these threats, and some I haven't even been able to cover, help to answer that question of must we change? So I believe the answer to that is yes, we must. But what about the second question? Can we change? The answer to this question is very exciting, and here's the good and positive news. Uh, because we have the solutions available to us, and they are affordable and accessible. We went through the agricultural revolution 8,000 years ago. We went through the industrial revolution, and more recently, we've gone through the digital revolution. We are now in the early stages of a sustainability revolution that has the magnitude of the industrial revolution combined with the speed of the digital revolution. And it's the biggest new business opportunity in the history of the world and the greatest way to create new jobs. Um, the growth in wind energy being built around the world is increasing dramatically. Wind energy could supply 40 times more electricity than the entire world currently uses. Um, and it's even more inspiring when you look at solar. The best projections for solar in 2010 was that we'd add one gigawatt uh, per year. Well, when that rolled over 2010, we beat that goal by 17, 17 times over. And in 2019, we beat that mark by 120 times over. And even more dramatically, um, we see that exponential curve in the amount of solar energy installed around the world. In many countries where there's not even universal electricity grids, we're seeing consumers and businesses leapfrog that old technology and they're installing solar panels in places that previously had no access to electricity. Every hour the earth gets as much energy from the sun as we need to run the entire global economy for a year. And if we can increase just a fraction of this energy that we harvest and use, uh, we can make a lot of progress towards solving the climate crisis and helping local communities and economies at the same time. Battery storage is an essential part of green energy. Storage technologies are getting more and more efficient and cheaper, and you can see that market is growing exponentially. Another energy efficient technology taking over the market are LEDs. This helps save people money and also reduce emissions because you're cutting down on the amount of electricity that you use. Uh, as far as the audible automobile market, all these manufacturers are offering and preparing or preparing to offer electric vehicles. And I just read uh, yesterday that Paris is phasing out diesel, gasoline, and even hybrid cars by 2030, and several other large uh, global cities are following. Tesla, which pioneered some of the most exciting um, electric vehicles, are now getting into the 18-wheeler market. And this electric semi will have a range of 300 to 500 miles using just battery alone, which is really incredible. 
the bus market, within five years, half of all the buses in the world are gonna be electric. So back to that question, can we change? Well, yes, because we already have changed. We already have that technology. So what about the final question? Will we change? Well, here is also some exciting news. Um, most of you probably know in December of 2015, the Paris climate negotiation in the Paris the climate, sorry, in the Paris climate negotiation, every nation in the world agreed to phase down greenhouse gas pollution to net zero emissions as early as the second half of this century. And meanwhile, here in the US, 24 of our states representing well over half of American people have already gone further than required by that Paris Agreement. And these are all cities that have already made a commitment to go to 100% renewable electricity. And some have already reached that goal. If you look at new investments in the US clean energy, they're certainly going up and that will continue. Um, and in the global economy, over 240 multinational companies have made a pledge to go 100% renewable energy. And finally, the sustainability revolution also includes agriculture. Uh, the IPCC, which if you're not familiar with that, is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they have made it clear that regenerative agriculture is one of the keys to solving the climate crisis. And if you're not familiar with what regenerative agriculture is, um, it is really a new land-based management practice that prioritizes soil health. Soils are a natural carbon sink. They store several times more carbon than the atmosphere. So we really need to cut way back on conventional farming techniques that are very destructive to soils because there's too much plowing and way too many synthetical, synthetic chemicals that actually destroy the soils. And soil erosion from conventional plowing is 100 times higher than the natural process by which soil is regenerated. And the sequestering of carbon in the soil has probably the biggest potential of any single measure to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And that regenerative farming can do this. Uh, the key practices of regenerative farming include uh, zero or very low till farming using cover crops and crop rotation, uh, agroforestry, which means farmland that's integrated with trees and shrubs, um, nutrient recycling, the use of biochar, which is a charcoal-like uh, decomposed biomass. And then a very important and integral part of regenerative farming is managed livestock. So this means free range, grass-fed livestock that can roam the land and aerate the landscape. So we've talked a lot about global issues, but a little bit more about what's happening here in the Midwest because a lot of people think we're getting a pass since we're not on the coast and we're sub not subject to wildfires, but we are definitely not getting a pass. So what are some of the impacts in the Midwest? And here's a little bit more bad news. Um, the impacts to the Midwest include, of course, extreme heat, flooding and drought, pests and pathogens, uh, which leads to some of, some loss of agricultural productivity, uh, tree species are declining, and overrun sewers. There's actually a shift, uh, a shifting in the summer climate here in the Midwest. This is what Illinois and Michigan summers are predicted to look like mid and end century. So that's pretty shocking. We are going to be a southern climate. Uh, if we, we already feel like we are right now, but even more so. Um, that shift in climate also results in a major loss of trees in the forest that stretch across the northern Midwest. Many of the iconic species could actually move out of the area as the region, or move out of the region as climate changes. Chicago is actually already accounting for this by planting trees that are, much, that are native much further south. Uh, so when they mature, they will be ideally suited 
to the climate of the future. And the Chicago Botanic Garden has a trees for 2050 study identifying some of the species that could thrive as our climate changes. And of course, our urban sewer systems, it cannot handle the extreme flooding that we're experiencing here in the Midwest. Um, this kind of historic flooding used to happen every century. Now it's happening almost every year. This was last year at the start of the pandemic. Uh, we Not only did we have the pandemic, but we had flooding. That's my unfortunate neighbor's basement. Um, so these kind of, you know, rain bombs are, are coming much more frequently. The Great Lakes are also getting impacted. Higher annual temperatures mean warmer waters um, that impact the health of fish and other wildlife. We get, we're seeing more algae blooms, more invasive species, and a decreased ice cover. And of course, increased rain, which leads to higher water levels and a lot more erosion. This is an eroding bluff in Michigan. The shorelines of Michigan and Indiana have lost so much of their shoreline in the last five years. All right, so here's some of the good news and solutions for the Midwest. Um, this landmark bill called FEJA, so Illinois Future Energy Jobs Act, uh, was passed in 2017 and is now being implemented. RPS means Renewable Portfolio Standards, and it is committing comment to purchase 25% renewable energy by 2025. Um, solar energy will quickly grow under FEJA, and this means more clean energy jobs. Uh, the Community Solar Program will let people who can't afford to buy solar panels, use community solar arrays that could be set up in parking lots or other community buildings. Um, FIJA was introduced to further the goals of FIJA. I know all these acronyms here. And yesterday, the Illinois Senate just passed this bill. So it is heading to Governor Pritzker's desk who announced that he will sign it. So we are on the path to 100% renewable energy. Cook County has a sustainability website. Uh, among their accomplishments are reducing emissions in their buildings, mostly by efficiency, and the county is pledging 100% carbon neutral by 2050. Sustain Chicago uh, website points to steps that they've already taken to reduce emissions by 11%. Chicago has pledged 100% renewable energy in buildings by 2035, and electrifying all their buses by 2040. And uh, museums like the Shedd Aquarium and Field Museum are helping Chicago to reach some of these clean energy goals. Our city was actually named one of seven LEAD. LEAD stands for Leadership in Energy Environmental Design. So it was named one of seven LEAD platinum cities in the world. And some of our libraries are aiming for that certification if they haven't already received it. So now the big question I know you're all dying to ask is what can I do personally? What, what can you and I do? Well, there's so many things that we can do. Um, conserving energy, of course, so we use less of it. That you know could be as simple as turning off your lights when you're not using them, but also switching to uh, lead light bulbs or LEDs. Um, updating windows for effective insulation, smart thermostats, being a mindful consumer when you are purchasing uh, appliances, look for energy efficient appliances, walk, bike, use public trans transit, fly less. I know we haven't been doing much of that, but fly less or when you do fly, this is not perfect, but you can buy carbon offsites when you do fly. Eat a bit more plant-based or have a bit more of a plant-based diet. Now, this doesn't mean you have to become vegan or, or vegetarian, which is wonderful if you are, but it really just means being a smart consumer and watch what you're purchasing when you are purchasing uh, meat, for example. Try to avoid buying factory meat that comes from factory farms, some of the big meat companies. And I just wanna talk a little bit about this because 
this is really an important topic that a lot of people don't know about. Um, believe it or not, 9 billion animals are factory farmed every year in the US alone. And that's, that's more than the population of the world. So what does, you might say, what does this have to do with climate change? Uh, the problem is that these 9 billion animals are raised on feedlots. This is what I mean by factory farmed. And this is very different from animals that are free range and grass fed in those regenerative uh, fields that I talked about because they do maintain a healthy ecosystem and in fact do help our climate. But these factory farmed animals that are raised with no grass, they are fed corn and soybeans, which is a very natural, uh, sorry, very unnatural diet for them. And that leads to a lot of digestive problems for them. And so steroids and antibiotics and other things that have to be introduced. And this feed corn and soy is actually what makes up now almost all of the Midwest farms. And those Midwest farms used to be made up of a whole diverse ecosystem of prairie grasses and forbs uh, that used to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. But instead, um, all of those, that corn and soybean is grown, they're all monocultures, and they are grown to feed these 9 billion, or contribute to feeding these 9 billion animals. Um, and also these factory farmed animals are directly emitting greenhouse gases from their own bodies. So when they burp, they release methane that's 20 times more potent for climate change than carbon dioxide. And when they pass gas or defecate, they release nitrous oxide, which is actually 300 times more potent for climate change than carbon dioxide. So, and there's no grass or healthy soil to sequester that carbon dioxide or the um, nitrous oxide because they're on um, feedlots. In fact, together, the world's top five meat and dairy corporations are now responsible for more annual greenhouse gas emissions than Exxon, Shell, and BP. So again, just being a, a, a smart consumer, watching your labels. Um, unfortunately, there is a lot of what's called greenwashing so they claim that they're grass-fed or free-ranged um, when in fact it, it's that's false. So a great choice would be uh, trying to find a local farm in the area. There's quite a few in Illinois and in Indiana. Um, buying meat directly from a farm, it can be a little bit more expensive, but it's first of all a healthier choice and you, you know, buy because it is more expensive, you eat less meat. All right, some more steps that you can take sign up for renewable energy through ComEd. Um, it's called Clean Choice Energy. It's simple and it's pretty much the same cost. It, again, it's not a perfect solution, um, but it's something. Planting native vegetation and native trees, uh, buying electric vehicles. Yes, that, that, that price in that market is still a little bit high, but hopefully in the next five years that will come down significantly. Uh, a really simple one and a very easy one is composting. 11% of all the greenhouse gas emissions come from food scraps that are releasing methane in landfills. And remember I said methane releases 20 times more um, or is 20 times greater um, than CO2 in terms of heating our, our atmosphere. So 11% of greenhouse gas emissions comes from landfills. When you compost, methane is not released during composting because you are, it's in the presence of air. And so you have aerobic decomposition. But in uh, landfills, when you put all of the food waste and your garbage and it gets buried under the ground, there are um, methane producing microbes that are active in that anaerobic environment. So that is something that can be done very easily or encourage your um, legislators in your township to provide uh, community composting. Uh, watch YouTube videos that show you how to compost. It's quite easy and that is a big thing that you can do individually. And of course, we didn't even talk about plastics. That would be a whole nother topic um, that I could talk about. But avoid using single-use plastics. 
First of all, single-use plastics, not only are they bad for the environment, but they are bad for your health. Water bottles, plastic water bottles, they are made with PPTs, which are toxic chemicals. And that water, those single-use plastics will break down over time and all that goes into your water. And they sit on shelves for a year in, you know, sometimes very hot conditions or they're in the back of a, a truck. So that a great, um, if you haven't seen it, a great documentary on plastic water bottles. It's a little old, but it, it's called Tapped. So it just tells you all about the harmful effects, not only again on the environment, but also on your health. Um, so using reusable water water bottles. Uh, I know sometimes it's it's difficult to avoid it, but try to use as, as little as you can. You can be, again, that smart consumer um, when shopping on Amazon. Search for things that have sustainable packaging. A lot of companies are moving towards cardboard or, for example, laundry detergent. Instead of buying it in those big, massive uh, plastic containers, you can buy it as little tablets or laundry strips or just go back to the old uh, powder, which came in cardboard boxes. Um, so there's so many different companies that you can buy, uh, you know, avoid as much as you can using plastic. So we're seeing more and more of that. And remember, that is driven by consumer demand. So if we demand it and we avoid plastics, Hopefully in time, it will start to change. And then lastly, reduce, 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 reduce. Um, that's really the key. Reuse, and then if you have to recycle, well, definitely recycle, but the first step is to reduce. Recycle is always the last step. And then one last thing all of us can do is to educate ourselves. Read books. There's an excellent book called Project Drawdown, and it's the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to actually reverse global warming. Watch documentaries. I talked about regenerative farming. Kiss the Ground is an excellent documentary on that topic. Uh, YouTube videos, uh, TED Talks, lots of other um, videos that you can watch. So I've been talking about one of the greatest humanitarian crises of our time. And while the planet will survive, it's really our civilization that is at risk. The planet will make it through. We are the ones that are at risk. So, but there's so much hope as well. And there's so much that uh, hope demands action. And there's so much that you can do. So please join those who are speaking out, voting, and making everyday choices to fight global uh, crisis, global warming and the climate crisis. Because your vote, your voice, and your choices really, really do matter. Every individual has an impact and together we can make a difference. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Yana, that was excellent. Um, we haven't had any questions pop up. I just want to ask our audience if there's any questions they'd like to throw out. One thing that I would ask, Yana, maybe while we're waiting for other sure. questions, is um, what's your feeling of the um, the need to rely on nuclear energy? I didn't hear that come up. And I know yes. that's a tricky one, but I'm, I know there's a lot of conversations in Illinois related to the future of our coal fire plants and then the future of nuclear. Well, I mean... That's it. I think that um, am I? I just saw something pop up, but uh, uh, you know that's a that's a pretty different conversation. Um, I think that nuclear is sort of last choice because of the extreme hazards and the pollution that can come with it. I think right now we have so many more options of clean energy jobs that can come out of solar and wind, and there's so much more potential for them still to come. So um, that's a tough, that's a tough question. <laughs> a great question, but I'm not a big, huge fan of nuclear energy. Okay. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, so there's a question from uh, Marcus Collins. Uh, says instead of using plastic water bottles and buying cases of water, is a water filter better for the environment? 
Yes, that's a great question. And I meant to say that. Uh, yes, Brita water filters. Now they don't filter out everything, but I will say, you know, our our uh, Chicago water is very good and it goes through a major treatment process. So yes, that's an excellent choice. And we do have water stations on campus. So just sticking a uh, water bottle in your backpack, um, there's so many places and not just here, but all around that you're seeing these water stations that are filtered um, popping up everywhere. So yeah, great, great question. Um, another question from Nick, do the little things like turning off lights and not running the tap matter? Yes, they do. And that's what I was trying to get across is every little thing matters. Okay, we'll not solve the entire climate crisis, but little steps, lead to bigger steps, which lead to even bigger steps. And as I mentioned at the very beginning of the talk, uh, really talking about this, you know, talking about with your friends, you know, what are you doing? Um, how do you use your energy? How do you, do you compost? You know, you don't have to force it on people, but you can have conversations. Great question. A question from Connor. Uh, you talked a lot about how we are changing and that we have made uh, climate commitments, is what we're doing enough or does more have to be done? <laughs> That's also a great question. Um, right now, you know, we have a lot of commitments and some of the problems are sometimes those dates come and go and we haven't seen that progress. So I think just um, there still is more that we can do. There definitely is a lot more that we can do, but you know, those commitments are one of the steps towards getting to that, that, that point. So yes, there's still more work that can be done. A question from Jennifer, what is Moraine doing to reduce waste and are there any future plans to create more projects or collaborate with other green initiative organizations? Well, that's also a great question. We, I think there's more steps that, um, that Moraine can take. I would love to see uh, composting on our campus. Right now, it's been very tough for the last year and a half because of COVID. We've actually taken quite a few steps backward, especially with the plastics. Um, but yes, there's more. I mean, we do have solar and we do have wind energy that the buildings on campus use, but I would love to see um, you know, lights. We do have lights on timers, but I do think we do sometimes use too much energy and it would be nice to see some of that being reduced. So yes, uh, all of that, that can be organized by students. Um, so yes, students out there. Oh, and I see that biology does have composting, which is awesome. <laughs> so we need to get that across. So I think biology needs to uh, bring that to the entire campus. It is sort of ironic in this time as we're looking at this for our one book that our campus um, sustainability manager has left um, which yes. all goes and because of um, you know budget issues we haven't filled that position so I do think there's a need for all of us as current employees to be to you know take that leadership to make some of the changes because um, that person isn't we don't have anyone in that role right now um, another question I recently uh, started eating more plant-based foods and more fruit how does plant-based meats um, help the environment you know, that's a, I don't know the answer to that. So I'm not going to talk about plant-based meats because I don't eat those myself. I do eat meat. I'm not a uh, vegan or vegetarian, but I have cut back on uh, meat and I only buy from, uh, it's called the farm that I buy from um, is, it's called uh, Seven Sons. So I am cutting way back on meat consumption and so I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think the point of that is just to uh, reduce, you know, buying some of that factory farmed meat. Uh, I'm not quite sure what's in the plant-based meat, to be quite honest. So that's a great question and a great, you can try to find the answer to that and get back to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just, there's a question about clubs. There is a club on campus called the Go Green Club, and it's sort of with the pandemic being reborn. And one of our That's librarians great. who's great, Tish Hayes is the new coordinator for that. 
And so if anyone on here is interested in joining that club, I just put my email in the chat. It's just swanson at morainevalley.edu. If you email me, I will put you in touch with Tish. I think the their first meeting might even be this week, might be Thursday, but it's very soon. Um, and there's, you know, it's a low commitment, come when you can, but they're trying to build um, connections and projects uh, in the near future. So um, definitely please uh, join that. That's um, great. It may be some of the biology students, you know, because Jennifer said there's composting there. Maybe we can transfer that and try to try to adopt that on in the student center. Seems like a nice uh, project, or at least to help uh, spread the word or support. Yes. Yeah. Um, how much of a difference uh, is a fully electric car make compared to a hybrid car? Well, hybrid uses uh, hybrid does use. What happens is there's battery in hybrid, and when you drive, you actually will power up that battery. I'm not, I don't know that technology great. I'm probably not a great person to ask this question, but um, elect, hybrid, uh, electric vehicles, they only have a certain range, and then they do, you know, convert to gasoline, some of them, unless it's 100% electric. Uh, so when it's 100% electric, you are, you have to plug it in to, um, of course, a electric source. So you are using electricity. Um, there is a bit of a downfall with that in terms of the US because 50% of our electricity in the US comes from uh, burning uh, coal burned power plants. So, you know, there's still a little bit of controversy in that. That's not true though, worldwide. So a lot of the stuff that I was talking about is kind of worldwide, but it's definitely still a step towards reducing our emissions. There, there was a question out of the Q&A from one of our faculty members, uh, Chris Matusik. Um, she's asking about resources uh, to gather good information on climate change. And of course, as a librarian, I have to give a shout out to our library resources. We have some yeah. really nice um, databases, especially our CQ researcher um, is really great at taking a big topic like climate change and breaking it down into pieces and making it accessible. Um, but beyond just contacting us, Yana, do you have any recommendations for sources or maybe the Climate Reality Project might have resources out there? Well, and if not, I, that's okay. <laughs> Put you on no, the spot yeah. a little bit. You know what, that does, I was, I would, send you to Project Drawdown. You can go to their website. Um, it is an excellent book. Um, so that's one of those. And they'll have also some resources there. So it's called Project Drawdown. Um, but yes, there's so many resources that, that Troy, I'm sure you have available in the library. And I, I would also mention on our One Book website, we have resources related to the themes of this book. And we've also highlighted some local resources um, about Chicagoland and kind of the impact and um, work that's being done here. And our, our website's just onebook.morainevalley.edu. And you'll, when you go there, you'll see a tab that says resources and you're, uh, please go through that. And our librarians are happy um, to help. I just put that in the Great. chat. Um, and we could probably, we're getting close. We can maybe take, if Yana, if you have time, we could take a couple sure. more. Um, What's the biggest contributor to the rising temperatures? Human activity, question mark. What countries are contributing the most? Uh, well, <laughs> the, um, yes, human activity. It's the amount of carbon dioxide that's being released. I mentioned at the very beginning of the talk that we can take paleoclimate records. So this is drilling into ice sheets and looking at what the atmospheric um, concentrations of carbon dioxide were, you know, at the time of the Vikings. So we do, we can compare the carbon dioxide levels 10,000 years ago with the ones that we see today. And it's an exponential curve. If you've ever seen Inconvenient Truth, um, you know, that was one of the biggest things to come out of that movie was just how much carbon we're dumping into the atmosphere. So yes, it is. And it's really developing countries, I'm sorry, developed countries are huge um, at, you know, all countries have some, some um, contribution, but developing, I keep saying that, I apologize, developed nations are one of the biggest culprits. The amount of, we, we, uh, 
you know, use the most amount of energy worldwide. And maybe just a, a closing question. Um, I think mentioning the pandemic seems to be timely these days. And it has, yes. has the pandemic been a test? I mean, it seems like people stayed home. Have we learned? Yeah. Has it been an experiment, natural experiment? Has it made things worse? Um, what are your thoughts on the pandemic in relation to climate change? Well, it was interesting because when everything shut down, I mean, in March, it seemed to be that there were we were starting to see some ecosystem changes. Uh, so I think it had, you know, maybe a positive, definitely a positive impact, but I don't think it, that is just long term. Um, we're going to get back to, you know, traveling has increased again, which is a good thing, of course, but um, I, I don't think that it, there was anything that significant that contributed to, to any major changes on the positive side necessarily. Uh, but, you know, maybe people during the pandemic watched more documentaries on global warming, had more time to to uh, look into some of these. So, you know, maybe we're starting to get more educated. As I mentioned, it, talking about it, it, it really needs to be on the forefront of, um, of our conversations and demanding changes through legislation and government. That's really where it has to come. And that's probably a good place to stop. Um, thank you so much, um, Yana. And just as a way of commercials, I want to remind everybody about the event on Thursday about misinformation and disinformation. Also coming up in October, we have some more climate related events. Um, first off, there's some great volunteer opportunities that will be led by Yana. We're actually going into the prairie that's to the west of campus that Yana helps to manage and um, collecting um, seeds from the native plants, uh, which we can we'll use to help keep, keep a healthy prairie into the future. So anyone can sign up and, and join us for that. That'll be a nice, hope. I, I promise, beautiful weather. I'm already working on that. So join us for that. Um, there's also some prairie tours coming up that Yana is going to be leading where we can look, take a really close look at our local ecosystem and how um, our prairie operates. Um, and then also some um, events about native plants and about um, the impacts of climate change on island life um, in the Pacific, or I'm sorry, in the Atlantic, sorry. Um, so uh, take a look at the library website. All the details are there. All the events are, um, for the, the lectures are online and free. And obviously the campus prairie events are here on campus. So um, once again, thank you everybody for coming. And yes, Donna, thank, thank you. you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And thank you everyone for uh, coming out. I, I am not a climate expert, by the way, <laughs> but I do have a passion and I am a scientist, so um, I just want to encourage all of you, you know, you don't have to be a climate expert to get involved. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you.